session that I was wanting to think about last week, um, Jesus in Jerusalem, and uh, how it all ends in Jerusalem, really. So moving on to session two, I know one or two people have told me that uh, you can't always hear when people ask questions, so I'll try and repeat the question or make it clear what the question was, so sorry I didn't pick up on that before. Um, So I've got a map there, a nice little map of Jerusalem. One of the things I like about this map is that it gives you a sense of space. Um, My dad is a surveyor, and I think I just kind of like maps and geography and stuff like that. But it gives you a sense of um, just how dominant the temple is in in Jerusalem. And actually, that Mary Magdalene film does a great job of the just size, sheer size of the temple. This is the biggest temple in the ancient world. Um, bigger than anywhere else, bigger than Karnak in terms of kind of just the size. I mean, absolutely dominating the whole, the whole city. And you can also see these houses here. These are the swanky houses where the nice people live. And you can see where everybody else lives. Gives you a real sense of, you know, the, the wealthy areas and the, and the poorer areas of the town. So then, um, we have Jesus going to Jerusalem. One question is, how often did he go there? Mark's Gospel gives the suggestion that he only went once. Um, in fact, Mark's Gospel is, gives the impression that Jesus' ministry didn't last very long, no more than about a year. The thing with Mark's Gospel, though, is that it, he does, he's not really very interested in chronology. Um, he's got far more of a topical arrangement, so he gives us a series of controversy stories and then he gives us some parables, and then he gives us some miracles. So actually the way that he organises it has nothing to do with, um, with chronology. And he, he has everything to do with uh, Galilee at the beginning, and then a long journey to Jerusalem, and then uh, everything to do with Jerusalem at the end. So Mark's Gospel actually isn't very much use in terms of how long Jesus' ministry lasted, John's Gospel, on the other hand, has Jesus coming down to Jerusalem quite a lot for um, at least three Passovers. So um, his ministry must have lasted at least kind of two and a bit years. Um, John has his own reasons for doing that. He wants to, to bring Jesus to, uh, to Jerusalem to kind of link him up with Jewish feasts. But it may well be that this is a historical recollection, that Jesus' ministry did last um, a certain length of time, perhaps more than a year and uh, maybe two or three years, or, or perhaps more. I mean, we just don't really know. But certainly the evidence from John, who is more interested in chronology, is that it lasted rather a longer time than Mark. Why does Jesus go to Jerusalem? Well, again, that's not entirely clear. Um, maybe a new audience, maybe because it's the Passover, maybe it's his his tradition to go to the Passover. Maybe he has been to the Passover in Jerusalem several times before. Or to die. And um, I think that in terms of the historical Jesus, that's not such a daft idea. Um, Of course, some of the things about um, the way that the Gospels present Jesus is clearly the result of sort of later reflection. But um, I think Jesus must have realised by this time that um, his days were numbered. He must have known what had happened to John the Baptist. Um, There's a strong tradition within Jewish texts that prophets die in Jerusalem. And I think he must have known that the chances were that he would um, 
that he would face controversy and, and conflict in Jerusalem. So although the Gospels, of course, make a, a, a theological point that he's going to Jerusalem in obedience to the will of God, I think there may be some uh, historical basis to that. And I think the fa- Passover festival is really important as a backdrop to this. The Passover, of course, is um, celebrating uh, liberation from bondage in Egypt. The story is in Exodus 5 to 12, um, an eight-day festival. And this is the big one as far as the, the pilgrimage festivals went. The holiest day for first century Jews was the Day of Atonement. That was a fast day. But there were three pilgrimage feasts, and of those, um, Passover does seem to have been the, the largest, the one where everyone tried to get to Jerusalem, if they could. I mean, by no means all Jews were able to get to Jerusalem. It would take several days to get there. Most people got there a week in advance, because you would purify yourself from corpse impurity, and that took a week um, to happen. And so that's why I think we have Jesus going in about a week before um, the festival starts and then of course the festival itself lasts eight days so that's and and then you've got to get home so that's probably about three weeks away from home away from your work most people in the ancient world couldn't really afford that amount of time away from home so people would come if they could but there was no expectation that everybody was there all the time. You didn't necessarily go every, every year. But still, we get the impression that there's thousands of people converging on a relatively small walled city. So many people, in fact, that people have to stay outside. And the tradition, of course, is that Jesus stays outside in Bethany with his friends uh, Lazarus and uh, Mary and Martha. Again, may well be a historical recollection there because that fits very well with what we know from other sources. Um, and also Pilate would have been here. Um, the, we'll see in a moment or two, the Roman governor actually made his headquarters in Caesarea um, on the coast. It's a beautiful Gentile town uh, built by Herod the Great. It's um, not Jewish at all. There's, there's pagan temples and all kinds of things there. Much better for a Roman governor to live there. But... Um, At festival time, Pilate and his troops come to Jerusalem to keep an eye on things. And of course, ironically, the fact that Pilate and his troops are there, um, I think, would would, uh, cause all sorts of difficulties for the people who are there. They're celebrating national liberation, freedom from slavery. And what do they see? Roman troops. Josephus says they even stood on the top of the, um, the temple, on the porticos of the temple. So... Everywhere they looked, um, there were Roman troops. And to the corner of the temple, too, is the Antonia Fortress, where they would have made their base. And on the opposite side is the Herod, um, Herod's Palace, where, again, some of them would have been stationed. Josephus says that all of the, pas- all of the riots that took place in the first century happened at Passover. And I think it's, it's quite believable, because this would have been an extremely tense time as I said, people celebrating liberation from bondage and seeing Roman soldiers. Also, it's a time to get together. Families are meeting, people are drinking, people are celebrating. And what happens when you've not worked for a few days and you've been with your family a few days? There's all kinds of tensions. Um, and of course, hopes and longings of the people 
uh, were only too ready to kind of surface and to spark. And so Josephus says that Passover was a really bad time for riots. And it, there, were all, there was always something breaking out. So Jesus goes into this city then that's, that's full to bursting of people, real sort of tensions uh, in the air, and he does a series of three prophetic signs. I think it's useful to kind of think of them in this way because they do seem to be sort of acted signs. We get a lot of um, Old Testament prophets who sort of perform signs, you know, uh, Isaiah with his yoke or Jeremiah and the potter. Um, and this, these seem to be kind of uh, similar to that. So the first one is a triumphal entry where Jesus comes into the city in uh, Mark 11 and also the other Gospels too, on the back of a donkey, of course. I used to teach at a theological college, and they were very keen there on saying that uh, this was not the triumphal entry, this was the humble entry. <laughs> they used to say, Jesus is humble entry because he's on a donkey, and donkeys are humble animals. Well, I always felt a bit un uneasy with that, and then I, I started to, to look into donkeys in the ancient world, and donkeys were the normal means of transport. They were kind of like the Ford Mondeo of the ancient world. Um, <laughs> it was your normal way of transport. Nobody would have thought, oh, you know, humble. They would have just thought he's on a donkey. And the important thing is that everybody else is walking. This is a pilgrimage. Pilgrimages in the ancient world, just like today, you walk. You don't ride in. You don't get the car up to the door and, and jump out. You're walking. The point is that Jesus is mounted. And actually, um, Solomon went to his coronation on the back of a donkey. And the judges judged Israel on donkeys. This is the normal means of transport. You would only be on a stallion if you were riding into battle. Jesus clearly isn't riding into battle. But the point is that he's riding in. So he's making a statement. He's <coughs> saying something. And of course, the uh, gospel writers link this very closely to Zechariah 9.9. Uh, Matthew, in particular, quotes the passage and also highlights the connection between Jesus and David. Whatever actually happened historically um, is less easy to be sure about, but it does seem as if Jesus rode into the, the city on the back of a donkey and there was some kind of acclamation by the crowd who are now joining. Jesus and the crowd from Galilee are now joining other crowds who are coming into the city. But presumably it's a fairly low-key thing. I mean, if it was a big kind of event, we would expect that Jesus would have been arrested much more quickly. And presumably it's a relatively small event. Jesus comes into the city and nobody, nobody uh, stops him. And the second thing is the incident in the temple. Jesus goes into the temple, he sees what's happening there, the money changes, people selling doves, and he overturns all of those tables and says, you know, this is, you're made into a den of thieves, it should be a house of prayer for all the nations. Now this is a case where I think the traditional title is less um, apt. This is generally called the cleansing of the temple. And people have traditionally seen this, I think, as a sign that Jesus was somehow against sacrifice. 
Um, but that would be really strange in the ancient world. Um, in the first century, to, to worship your god was to offer sacrifice. Um, it's a very modern Protestant idea to think that you don't kill an animal when you're worshipping. Uh, well, not, not entirely Protestant, but I think there's been a, a large dose of kind of ideas that, you know, somehow ritualistic, sacrificial worship is somehow not true worship. Um, and of course, everything that was happening in the temple is all laid out in the Old Testament. All of those sacrifices have all been asked for by God. So there's no, no evidence of Jesus' anti-sacrifice. Also, in, in the book of Acts, we have the early Christians quite happily still going into the temple. Um, and if Jesus had been against the temple, that would be very strange. Some people then say that Jesus is anti-corruption, that what he's actually uh, against is this money changing, the buying of uh, sacrifices in the temple. That is possible, but again, there's no evidence that anyone is doing anything wrong here. The money changers are changing money into Tyrian chattels so that people can pay their temple taxes, which again is, is uh, required by uh, the law in the Old Testament. And the, the priests are providing these animals that you can buy there because they're already said to be ritually clean. Um, and there's no requirement to buy your animal there. You can bring it in with you if you prefer. Um, so nowadays, most scholars think that what Jesus was doing is actually prophesying the destruction of the temple. So by knocking these things over, and Mark has a funny thing. He says he stopped people moving from one bit to another. So I think by knocking these things over, by stopping the temple traffic, what he's doing is just sort of symbolically, for a moment, stopping the action of the temple. And this fits in actually better with things that Jesus says elsewhere. Um, Mark 13, 1-2, the disciples say, look at these huge stones. And Jesus says, they're all going to fall down. The temple will be destroyed. And in, his, in the trial narrative as well, um, People come and say, he said that the temple will be destroyed. So there does seem to be a theme in Jesus's uh, teaching that says the temple will be destroyed. People, just like in the days of Jeremiah, people are putting their trust in the temple. People think because the temple is there, this huge, massive temple and God is there, everything is fine. But, you know, Jesus knows that uh, the end times are coming and it's going to be very different. So there are still some scholars who think it's about corruption, but I'd say most people now think it's to do with destruction. And this has been very powerfully argued by E.P. Sanders, who I mentioned earlier on. He, um, he, he's the person who sort of most um, clearly sort of articulated that view. And I think what, what for me is good about it is that it does fit in with other aspects of Jesus' teaching, whereas that idea of corruption, he doesn't say anything else about corruption. Um, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I've been forgetting to uh, repeat the question. We've been asked about um, co using coded language here. And I, I, I think that's right. That's why I like the idea of kind of prophetic signs. There's more to this for people with eyes to see. You know, I think Jesus tells parables not only in Galilee in those stories, but I think these are in a way parables. And I think that's right, the idea that this... The, the temple will be wiped away because there's no longer any need for it. Um, it's become oppressive, it's a symbol of collaboration with Rome, um, and people are going to have a much more personal 
relationship with God that, that doesn't need that kind of mediating figure. Um, and I think, I, I think that's, that's certainly part of it. I mean, another thing too, and the reason why, one of the other reasons why I like to think of these as sort of prophetic signs rather than, I mean, people sometimes talk about this as an occupation of the temple. And sometimes you, you watch um, films and things, um, dramatic retellings, in which this seems like it's a big, big deal in a small, small place. If you look at the size, I mean, this, this um, is quite a nice reconstruction of what people think the temple looks like. Of course, the temple was all destroyed apart from the Western Wall. But we can sort of reconstruct it based on uh, Josephus's testimony and also the Old Testament record. This, you can see this is the outer area. It's the size of 12 football stadiums. As I said before, this is the biggest temple in the ancient world. It is huge, um, bigger than St. Paul's, dare I say. Massive, massive, massive. So if Jesus is in there knocking over a few tables and things, it's a very small event. Probably it's over before anybody knows what's happened. And the fact that Jesus isn't arrested, either by the Levitical uh, police who are around here, or the Roman soldiers who are on the, uh, on the porticos, I think suggests that it's, it's sort of all over before anybody quite knows what's happened. And presumably there's all sorts of stories going around. What did it mean? What did he, you know, even at, at that time, people would have found it hard. What was he saying? What's the meaning here? And perhaps different people were interpreting different things by it. In John's Gospel, yes, that's right. In John's Gospel, and, and to some extent in, in the trial narrative where he says, um, you know, I will replace it with the, with the Gospel not made with hands. I mean, it's hard to know if that goes back to the historical Jesus himself or whether that's kind of Christian thinking after the temple was gone. Do we still need a temple? Well, actually we don't. And that was one of the things that distinguished Christians from Jews because after the destruction of the temple, Jews thought the temple was going to be rebuilt. And as it had been, the first temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt. And now the Romans have destroyed the temple, it will be rebuilt. And in that kind of um, transitional time, Christians seem to have thought, well, actually, we don't need the temple because all that we would normally look to the temple for, we get through Jesus, through Christ, the resurrected Jesus. And that's one of the things that seems to have kind of pulled Christians and Jews apart, you know, one of the many things. So it's difficult to know whether Jesus already in his lifetime talked about replacing the temple or whether this is a kind of post-destruction thing. I personally think it's more likely that it's a post-destruction thing. But, um, you know, you can argue different ways about that. So that's the second one then. And then the third one is the Last Supper. Um, not this kind of public um, uh, sign, but a much more private one. I mean, it's interesting that all, well, not all the Gospels, Mark, Matthew and Luke have uh, the Last Supper, um, Jesus, with his disciples. John doesn't have it, but, um, but Paul does. So Paul has this, um, a, a very clear re recollection that on the night he was betrayed, he also um, ties in very closely with what we had in the other Gospels there, that, that Jesus also kind of performs this symbolic um, thing with his disciples, sort of initiating 
uh, what will become the Christian Eucharist then. But again, I think uh, ideas of sort of impending death and um, preparing them for what's going to happen. So we get these three um, sort of prophetic signs then. And I thought I'd just look at uh, the, the two sort of prime opponents of Jesus in uh, Jerusalem, partly because I've done a lot of work on characters. My, I did my PhD on Conscious Pilate, and then my second book was on Caiaphas, and I sort of got known as being someone who wrote about bad people in the Bible. <laughs> so I quickly changed to Jesus, and I think I've shaken off that, um, <laughs> the, bad, the bad image. But... Um, I, I think it's interesting to kind of look at the history through different people's eyes because it can it can sort of open up for you what what why they were motivated to act the way they did. Caiaphas, high priest, for a very long time actually, he was the longest serving high priest of the first century, from nineteen to thirty-seven. He belonged to a high priestly dynasty, uh, the dynasty of Annas. And he, like all the other high priests at this point, was appointed by Rome. And I think that's an important dynamic. He owes his position to the Roman governor. He wasn't actually appointed by Pilate. He was appointed by Pilate's predecessor, Gratus. But presumably Pilate thought he was doing a good job, happy to leave him there. Presumably Pilate had no trouble with him. He thought he was pursuing a pro-Roman policy and Pilate could have got rid of him very quickly had he wanted to. So as high priest then, he's a figurehead of the Jews. He's the only person who's allowed into the uh, Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He wears the high priestly robes that were actually believed to be the garments of Adam in a sort of popular mythology. Adam once he got some clothes, that is, <laughs> rather than Adam before Adam in his birthday suit. Um, so the gospel suggests that, jo that Caiaphas is sort of the high priest is is the main opponent, um, along with this sort of vague group of chief priests who seem to be the sort of the priestly dynasty, the family, the rest of the family of Annas, along with a Sanhedrin. Now the word Sanhedrin just means a sitting down with a council. Um, some people have suggested this is a formal council. But there's not actually any evidence for a formal council in the time of Jesus. It may be that this is just a council gathered by the high priest. People, advisors, people he thinks are going to be useful in this particular situation. There's no evidence from Mark's Gospel that Pharisees were involved at all. Um, they do get added by Matthew and then, Luke, and, and then uh, John. But in our earliest text, it seems to be the high priest with his sort of priestly advisers who are the main Jewish opponents. And Caiaphas's main uh, interest here is maintaining the smooth running of the feast. Everything about the series of sacrifices has been laid down in the Old Testament. Um, he's got to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Um, and, and a lot is at stake. It's not just... Um, the, the history of Israel, but this has cosmic influence. It was generally believed that what happened in the temple was good not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And so it's vitally important that everything runs smoothly. If there's a troublemaker around going into the temple, doing things, then I think it's not at all surprising that Caiaphas would start to take notice and want to do something about it. Excuse me, does he have political power? 
To some extent, yes, because um, Pilate lives, as I said, out in, in Caesarea Maritima on the coast, and he's interested in law and order, security, that kind of thing. And he more or less left the day-to-day running of the, the place in the hands of, of Caiaphas and the, um, the chief priests. So to some extent, he has some sort of day-to-day political power. Um, not, I mean, he doesn't have any troops or anything like that, but he has the Levitical priests and, you know, the, the maintenance of the temple is very much in his, his sort of guard. So, um, and he would have obviously had a certain amount of political clout. I mean, he is the figurehead. He's, he's um, the, the top dog, really. He's, a, he's the, 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 the figurehead of the Jewish nation, not only in Israel, but also in the diaspora, in all the sort of places where, Israel, where Jews are dispersed. So I think he had a lot of sort of personal authority in that sense. So that's Caiaphas. Pilate, though, as we said, out in Caesarea, coming to Jerusalem with auxiliary troops. He doesn't have any legions, but he has uh, cavalry and uh, infantry um, who come along with him. And if you think about it, back to what I said at the beginning, it's only been 20 years that Israel has been directly um, under Roman rule. So this is still a kind of a period of Romanization. People are still getting used to Roman rule. And so um, Pilate's main job at, the, at, at this time is uh, the maintenance of law and order. He's making sure that there's no riots. He's making sure everybody sort of does what they are supposed to be doing. And probably Pilate would have had all sorts of spies and informers. Um, you know, the, the impression you get from the Gospels is that um, the, the chief priests want Jesus uh, done away with, they come to Pilate and tell him all about it. But I'm sure Pilate would have known all about it anyway. He would have known from Herod Antipas all about John the Baptist. He would have had plenty of spies and informers tell him about the feeding of the 5,000, all these other things that Jesus was supposed to have done, and presumably about the triumphal entry and other things too. So quite likely, even if there had been no intervention, by the chief priests, Pilate would have put him to death. And of course, crucifixion was a Roman penalty. It was not used by Jews, apart from once um, a long, long time before by one of the Hasmonean kings. But Jews certainly wouldn't have been able to crucify anyway at this period, because there's some debate about whether Jews could, uh, could inflict the death penalty or not. But even if they could, they certainly wouldn't have been crucifying. So that has led some people to ask, do we need the the, the Jewish authorities at all? Um, Clearly since the Second World War, since the Holocaust and the terrible things that happened there, there's been a a much more interest in looking at the trial narratives and asking, particularly the Jewish trial narrative, and asking to what extent were um, Jews, the Jewish authorities, or Jewish people generally responsible um, for the death of Jesus. And there are some some scholars who will argue that there was no uh, Jewish involvement at all. I put John Dominic Crossan down there, and his book is in the bibliography. Also Adela Reinhartz, um, who's written a book on on Caiaphas, and argues that um, Caiaphas was actually trying to get Jesus off, um, but it was sort of twisted in the telling by by Christians. Uh, J.D. Crossan suggests that Jesus was just taken up after the temple incident, just arrested and put on a cross, and that was all there was to it. But then the Christian uh, story kind of added these trials to it. 
I can see why those are attractive positions to take, but it does seem to me that, um, and I, I mean, I think too, it, there's no doubt that the evangelists have um, increased the level of Jewish involvement because of this sort of history of antagonism that they've they've had. But it does seem to me that the basic storyline does seem to make sense, partly because of that reconstructed Josephus. You know, Josephus does suggest that there's some high-level involvement of the Jewish leaders who then pass him on to Pilate. Also, because there's a very similar story of a man called Jesus ben Ananias, told by Josephus, and I've put the full version in your pack. Anyone heard of Joseph, uh, Jesus ben Ananias before? He was a Jewish prophet in the 60s. Um, he sort of appeared and he, um, in, in the temple and he started quoting bits from Jeremiah saying, uh, woe to the temple, woe to the temple, it's all going to be destroyed. And he kept doing this for year on year, year on end. Finally, the Jewish chief priests got sick of him, so they arrested him, and they took him to the Roman prefect, who had him severely scourged, and decided he was just mad, and let him go again. At which point he went straight back to the temple, <laughs> woe to the temple, woe to the temple. And then according to Josephus, he said, woe is me, and then a Roman missile kind of hit him, and that was the end of him. Um, <laughs> a sorry little story, perhaps, but what's interesting about it is that sequence of events. The chief priests have him arrested, take him to the Roman governor. In that case, the Roman governor decides that he's just a lunatic, that he's just going to let him go, um, and, and he just carries on on his merry way. But it's exactly the same kind of sequence that we get with Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, Jesus of Nazareth, though, was more of a threat. He has a following, he's been doing things in the temple, and you can see why Jesus of Nazareth ended up on a cross, whereas Jesus ben Ananias was thought to be mad and allowed to go. So it depends, you know, how much you're willing to believe the Gospels. But again, to me, I think the basic storyline seems to be um, broadly um, accurate. That's not at all to say that the trial narratives. Oh, yeah? Just a question about Oh, yes! Procular? Yeah. What, that he had a wife or that she had a dream? <laughs> well, I mean, governors were often married and they were allowed to take their wives to the provinces in this period, um, so it's not impossible. Whether she had a dream and whether she would have stopped a trial um, and sent the information, we, we just don't know. Um, I mean, I think within the rhetoric of Matthew's Gospel, and it's only in Matthew you get it, um, within that rhetoric, she is kind of, Matthew likes dreams. You know, God speaks through dreams, as he does in the birth story. So this is Matthew's way of saying, God is saying, you know, have nothing to do with that man. Um, at the same time, you've got the chief priests stirring up the people. So um, I think that's sort of the rhetoric of the story, whether there's any historicity, who knows. Um, you know, later on, uh, all sorts of uh, Christian literature got very excited by Procula. She was a, a saint in various traditions, as Pilate was too, actually, in the Ethiopic um, tradition. And um, she was called Claudia Procula. She was said to be related to the emperor, and you know she gets a whole backstory. But um, in terms of history, I'd be, I'd be dubious. 
sadly. <laughs> it's a nice story. Along with the idea that Pilate is a Scotsman, that's another one that, that gets brought out quite a lot, um, particularly by uh, the, <laughs> the Dundee, because it's supposed to be deporting now, so particularly by Dundee property agents. Bizarrely, you know, you see on the local news, uh, <laughs> um, a house believed to be close to where Pilate lived. <laughs> It's a nice idea. But there's also traditions that he came from uh, Spain and Germany, and you know, who knows? More likely in Italian, I think. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere an edition, uh, maybe not no more than that, that he actually was on quite logic ground as a government, that he had actually distinguished himself with some of the political decisions that he made. Well, I've, I've actually put, again, just for you to read afterwards, um, i put some, some texts in, in that pack from, i put all the texts we have about Pilate, um, quite a few from Josephus and one from Philo, who, and Philo thinks it, he says terrible things about him, um, and his governorship is just one, a series of disasters and all kinds of things. Um, I mean, you can't, they are no more historical than the Gospels, you know, they're, all of these ancient authors have their own rhetoric, and within the context of their, their stories, um, Philo just doesn't like Pilate, so he says terrible things about him, and he says the same terrible things about all the people he doesn't like, so you have to take this with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, yeah, it's hard to know, I mean, he's, he's a Roman governor, he lasted ten years, he must have been reasonably good, <laughs> by ancient standards. That, that probably means that by our standards he, he was pretty terrible. Um, he must have put down all, res all um, insurrections and that kind of thing whenever they happened. Um, but yeah, we, we don't really know. And there, there's, also, um, there's also a thought that he was put there by Sejanus, who was Tiberius's right-hand man. And Sejanus lost his position in 31 CE, and some people have said that he was slightly kind of, you know, uncertain of his himself. In the aftermath of that, it's possible. Well, that accounts for his um, when they, the priest said to him, "If you don't, you know, friend the Caesar." The it's possible, it's possible. I mean, certainly a Roman governor would want to be a friend of Caesar. You know, who would not want to be a friend of Caesar if you're in that position? And he seems to have gone out of his way to sort of put up shields to honour Caesar, and he builds a, a lighthouse perhaps in um, Caesarea in honour of Caesar. So he's very keen to be a friend of Caesar. I mean, that would be something that would have some currency with Pilate. So as I said, the, the, the trial narratives... Um, in the Gospels, I think you have to be rather careful of. They're all written in the... I mean, trial narratives in ancient literature anyway are always very dramatic. They're always the way in which the hero kind of presents his views. Um, this is a, a typical thing of ancient literature. It may be that, that nobody really knew what had happened in Jesus' trial. Mark gives this sort of paschal amnesty. He says that the, uh, the, the governor released one man. He's interested in this idea of choice. So Pilate is trying to release Jesus, but the people stirred up by the chief priests um, shout for Barabbas, a political insurrectionary. Again, after the Jewish revolt, 
Um, Mark, I think, is tapping into these stereotypes. Here are Jewish leaders um, stirring up the people to shout for revolutionaries. This is what these Jewish leaders do. And it's the kind of thing people will believe. But of course, it's, it's a terrible story. It's the story that, that um, the Jewish people are shouting for Barabbas. Matthew makes that even stronger. Barabbas is now called Jesus. Um, Jesus Barabbas. The name Barabbas means son of the father. So do you want Jesus son of the father or do you want Jesus the Christ? And the people shout for the wrong Jesus. And it's only in Matthew that you have Pilate washing his hands and then that terrible cry of the people, his blood be on us and on our children. Um, read in its first century context, I think that shows a lot of the pain and hostility that this small Christian group is feeling against the much larger, much more dominant uh, Jewish group. But read now, of course, read in the 20th century, uh, and read all the way through the Middle Ages, of course, it's had a disastrous effect. Luke is very keen to show that Jesus is innocent of the charges. Um, by this time, of course, most of the people coming into the Christian movement are not Jews, they're <coughs> Gentiles. And that's all very fine, except that you're saying that the person at the centre of this faith is someone who was executed by a Roman governor in the most horrific way possible. Um, and so part of the strategy here is to say that the Roman governor didn't really want to kill Jesus. He was pushed into it by the Jewish uh, leaders. And John, too, I think, um, sort of plays his part in this. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about the, um, the trial narratives. Historically, there probably was some kind of very brief hearing before Pilate decided, might as well get rid of him. Human life, I think, was um, thought of very cheaply, especially when it was somebody of Jesus' social class. The Romans have this complicated legal structure, but it only kicks in if you're a Roman citizen. If you're not, you're expendable. And I think from Pilate's point of view, it was probably much better just to get rid of Jesus. And of course, as we said before, the decisive thing in all of this, of course, is the resurrection. Had the resurrection not taken place, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't have had these texts. I mean, who knows, there were followers of John the Baptist well into um, the 3rd, 4th century, but they're more or less died out now. It is the resurrection that's um, the important thing in all of this and that's what transformed the historical Jesus into the Jesus of faith. And just in terms of kind of final re reflection, and this is as much for you to think about as anything else, although I'd be happy to hear your thoughts. I mean, people sometimes say, why should we not bother reconstructing the historical Jesus? Why does it matter? You know, we've got the Christ of faith. Why bother with this man who lived 2,000 years ago? And it seems to me that the big reason why we should bother is the incarnation. That at the heart of Christian teaching is the idea that God became a man. It would be very strange, it seems to me, if we didn't spend any time at all thinking about what that man was like using our best historical techniques, our best historical reconstructions to try and work out what that man was like, what he stood for. Um, also, I think another reason for 
trying to think about and trying to reconstruct the historical Jesus is because the Gospels are also interested in the life of Jesus. Paul, as we said already, is just really interested in the death and resurrection. That's all he needs. But by the time you get to the Gospels, there is an interest in the life of Jesus. And I think that also means that there's, there's an interest for us in trying to work out more about that life. <coughs> of course, the problem comes when the historical Jesus doesn't start not to look like the Christ of faith. And I, a lot of my students actually find it very difficult. They find historical Jesus work, um, some of the hardest stuff that they have to do in their theology degrees, because they feel like they're being asked to somehow sort of um, go against everything they've been taught. Everything they hold dear about Jesus, suddenly they're being told, belongs to a later time, and we're looking at something different. And so I'm very well aware of, of, of the difficulties that uh, can pose. But for me, I don't really find it uh, too difficult. I suppose for me, there's a historical Jesus, then there's a resurrection, and there's sort of various ways in which the church has understood and reinterpreted Jesus. I actually have no difficulty with a new Jesus for a new age. I think every age is always reinterpreting Jesus, always making him relevant. Um, so that's the way I sort of work the two together. But I think different people will work those things out differently themselves. I mean, I've been asked about the circularity of the Gospels, and I, I mean, there are some, some scholars will have, I mean, everybody has a different level about the Gospels. Some people think that the Gospels are more or less historically accurate as they are. Richard Borkham, you mentioned uh, Tom Wright, has a very uh, strong view of the Gospels as being broadly historical. Other people are far more critical, and there's you know a whole spectrum of scholarship. The Jesus Seminar are quite liberal in all of that. Um, and we do, to some extent, go round and round in circles. Um, Albert Schweitzer did say in 1902, was it, when he wrote... Um, his famous book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, one of his big critiques was that we all find the Jesus we're interested in. We find a Jesus who's like us somehow. George Tyrrell, slightly after, said um, of Protestant uh, reconstructions that it's like they're looking in a, in a well and they see their Protestant face <laughs> looking back at them. And I think, I think that's actually really... I think it's, it's, a, it's an important observation that we find the kind of Jesus we find congenial. It can be dangerous, um, it can be dangerous exactly. I think it's a, good, it's a good limitation. You have to always be thinking, what kind of Jesus am I finding? Am I just seeing that because I want to? Um, but at the same time, I think Jesus, maybe the plasticity is a good thing in that we can find Jesus who speaks to, to modern times. Um, of course, that, that's always going to be difficult, who decides and who decides where the boundaries are. But, um, you know, the, the sort of refinding uh, the role of women within the Jesus movement, of course, is something that's very useful to, to modern women. And finding a, a more political side to Jesus perhaps might fit in with certain ways of thinking now. Um, and it's really not that they're not there, but you're just sort of highlighting certain things. Jesus liberated women. Yeah. He's a divine liberator of women. And he surrounded mm -hmm. himself with strong women. Mm -hmm. But exactly, but, but then they wouldn't have said that 100 years ago. 
You know, they would have looked at you as if you were, you know, what do you mean? He had a prostitute next to him. And it's her. You know, I mean, these things, we do change. And it's interesting to kind of look back on the history and see how historical Jesus' work does kind of reflect the history of its times. Some people think that's a problem, but I don't necessarily. But you can come to your own conclusion sometime. What brings you to do this work? What brings me just fascination with, I mean, I, I, I was brought up in a, in a Christian home, as I said, I was sent to a Catholic home school. My Protestant mother always used to say, what did you learn today? Because we don't believe that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.